We're all communicators, right? Well, how would you like to be a better communicator? We're going to talk about that as we dig into the book, Design for How People Learn, up next on the Leader Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Julie Dirksen, author of Design for How People Learn. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So obviously you like to teach, you, you like to help people uh, learn and, and, and better communicate. You know, what brought you into this subject and, and what made you think, I've, I've got to put pen to paper and, and write this book? Well, I think a lot of people's origin stories with any kind of learning and development effort is, hey, you're a good customer service rep or you're a good web developer or you're a you know, you're a good whatever. Um, we're going to have you teach the other customer service people or the web developers or or whatever. And so, um, uh, and that was kind of my origin story. I started out uh, working for a finance company doing data entry in college and then wound up getting a job um, training on their data entry function and then later other areas in the company um, when I graduated. So, uh, the the fact is, is that almost everybody who teaches stuff comes to it through domain expertise. They know a lot about their topic. They get asked to teach it. And if you're a K-12 teacher, you get training on how to teach it. But if you're dealing with adults, most of the time you just kind of get handed the keys to the PowerPoint deck and asked to just run with it. So um, that's where the book came from, basically, is I saw a lot of people who had so much knowledge about their area of expertise, but not necessarily a lot of guidance on how to um, translate that into a good learning experience for people. And so um, different fields have a different first book for things. So if you want to learn about user experience, somebody gives you Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. Or if you want to learn about graphic design, there's a couple of first books for that. And it really felt to me like we were sort of missing a first book for um, instructional design or designing good training experiences or good learning experiences for anything, really. And so that's what I was trying to do was to take all of the – knowledge that we know about how to design good learning experiences and turn it into um, something that was pretty easy to read and get through. And, you know, I was kind of aiming for that plane ride book, you know, the one that yeah. you could read in three, four hours and that it would be accessible to basically anybody regardless of their background. 
I love how it's laid out. I love how the book's laid out. It's very prescriptive. I mean, you could go start to finish, but you can also dig into different chapters if you're like, I really need to understand, um, you know, better ways to get make my learning stickier. I need to understand, like, you know, how do I motivate them a little bit better in, in the classroom? So I like that you can pull that aside and it, it, the layout's fantastic. But let's mechanize this a little bit. And when I look at this, this could be very much very popular for people that are in the training world or people that are out there in front of people. But this also, the way I read it, is this could be for people anytime you're in a presentation, anytime that you have to communicate with your team, there's ways that you can do things in a better way um, for that, that that knowledge transfer, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I do I do hear that from people who are not necessarily training people per se, but that they just like the way that it frames kind of communication around things. And um, I, I don't think we talked about this, but my very first experience with um, Blanchard was a program that I was doing for uh, sales training managers in the late 90s. Mm. And one of the things I really loved about it was it sort of said, here are some basic questions to ask about where this person is. And then here are some really specific behaviors that you can um, then use based on what you what you know about this person. And I kind of felt like that was missing in a lot of the learning design stuff. You know, basically like ask some basic questions about what kind of content you're trying to teach or what kind of behavior you're trying to see in in the population that you're working with. And then based on those things, you're going to arrange the learning experience differently depending on what's needed. So is it something where it's a really subjective skill or is it something where it's very clearly defined procedural? Is it something where we're going to have to have a persuasive element? You know, all of those different kinds of things play into what kind of learning experience you design. So you talk about the learner's journey and, and, and really, you know, that's, that's the key is to, is to take them on this pathway that, that they're going to kind of go through. You, you talked about SL2. That, that's, a, that's a development model that helps people go from being enthusiastic but not knowing what's going on to being a, ultimately an expert. And that's what the learner mm-hmm. and that's what the, the, the teacher is, is, is kind of intended to do. So how would you suggest somebody get started on this journey? How would you suggest them to get better at, uh, at, at teaching and learning and, and, uh, and, and getting that knowledge transfer out there? Yeah, yeah. And there's some pretty simple things. The the first part of it, it is always just really clearly defining the behavior that you want. Um, and that seems like it's super obvious, and yet I see it not happening all the time. We get things like we want our audience to be more customer focused. Well, that's great. But, but if what's the actual behaviors associated with being customer focused? Um, and so I have a little kind of litmus test for that one where I say, okay, if I took a picture or a video of somebody being customer focused, what would I see? Um, so that you can try to, you know, sometimes tease out and sometimes they know exactly what the behaviors are, but, um, but other times it's more of an intention or an outcome that we're aiming at. And so being able to really define that behavior up front and then sort of set an objective around it and make sure that you're solving a problem. Because a lot of times, you know, as a learning designer, I'll get something like we need customer service training. And I'm like, okay, but what, what problem are you trying to solve by having customer service training? You know, is there something in particular that's not happening that you'd like to see happen? Is it just, you know, taking an audience of complete novices and trying to move them into this, you know, being able to be specific about that. And then once we've defined a behavior, so for example, maybe the behavior we want to have is oh, asking customers questions about their needs before jumping right to a solution, you know, if it's a sales or a customer service scenario or something like that. Um, then we start to kind of look at the question of, well, is this just a knowledge gap 
Um, so we look at what are the, what's the gap between where they are now and where you want them to be. Is it just if they knew what questions to ask, that ask them and that's all they need to know? Well, great. That's easy. You know, that's an easy problem to solve. But is it something where you really, um, people are much better or worse at it, you know, in your in your audience, well, then, then it's probably not as simple as just knowing the right answer. Then there's probably some skill attached to it. So if being able to really identify customer needs is something that's more skill-based, then we know that we need to have them practice it. And we probably need to show them a lot more examples um, than just one, for example, because uh, if you just have the one example, they may or may not understand the subtleties of what makes that an important example. But if you show them 15 examples, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, and you talk about what they are, then they start to understand the subtleties of like, this is what makes it a really good customer question. And this was this one's why it's not such a good customer question, you know, that kind of thing. Um, is it something where even when they know what to do, there's reluctance to do it for some reason. It could be about how they're incentivized or it could be that something feels awkward. Um, you know, so for example, if I wanted a behavior was cross-selling a product, um, but people were reluctant to do it because they didn't want to sound pushy. You know, they weren't maybe natural salespeople. And so then if that's the case, then I have to start looking at how am I going to address this reluctance on this person's part, right? How do I make them more comfortable with it? Is it a matter of having more practice so it starts to become something that they do automatically? Is it a matter of persuading them that like, no, the cross-selling actually has some benefits for the customer. Here's how you're helping them with it. Mm. You know, there's a number of different ways that you can look at it. Um, uh, another question that I always ask is, is it something where I need it to be a habit? And by a habit, I mean... Um, they're going to need to do this sort of automatically. So let's say um, a behavior that you want is you want a manager to give their um, their direct reports timely feedback. You know, maybe they're maybe they're not giving them such timely feedback. Maybe the feedback's only showing up on the annual performance review. So then. Um, then it's probably something where we're trying to develop a habit around that. And one of the big questions you want to ask around habits is what's the thing that's going to trigger that behavior for that person? So what you might want to do then is ask them to look for triggers in the environment that tell them it's a good time to give feedback. So it might be, um, you know, it might be something where you just agree that you're going to do it on a weekly basis. You're going to have a weekly sit down with, you know, your direct report and you're going to talk to them about what's going on. Or it might be something where every time somebody does something positive in a status update that you're going to want to give feedback at that point. You're going to want to focus on giving positive feedback. And the trigger is going to be somebody's going to tell you something and say, hey, this is going well. Um, then that is going to be an opportunity for you to go, oh, you know, here's a place where I could stop and say, say something positive and give a piece of feedback around it. And so what, what are the things that are going to tell me I should interrupt all my automatic actions and behaviors that I do and stop and give feedback at this point? Um, so we look at all of those things. And then the other big question that you, uh, that you always want to ask is, is there something within the system that um, I can change uh, the system or the environment that I can change that's easier than trying to change the people. So, for example, we're all very conscious of hand washing right now, but hand washing and healthcare compliance 
Oh, gosh. Um, it used to be about 40% of the um, recommendations for healthcare professionals um, in the U.S. And uh, over several years, they got it up to about 70% compliance. But a lot of the changes between that 40% and the 70% was actually changing the physical environments to making it easier to wash your hands by putting it in, you know, putting the hand washing materials or the alcohol-based um, the addition of the alcohol-based hand rubs really made a big difference in hand washing compliance. So putting that right by the door, so as soon as the healthcare provider walks into the room, it's right there and it's easily accessible. So that's a case where all the persuasion in the world about, hey, it's really important to do this, wasn't quite as effective as adapting the environment so that you made the behavior easier and more obvious to do. So I love uh, one of the sections I, 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 you know, as I said, this is very prescriptive where you can kind of go through and, and, and look at things, but you, you, you did a, a kind of a deep dive into how we remember and, and how, you know, we, we take things on. So what your research has shown you is, is especially for adults, like how do we make things more sticky where we hold onto them more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we all have kind of this, flashcard hangover from grade school or whatever it is where that was the way that you if you really wanted to remember something you'd do something like flashcards or whatever and there's some good pieces to that you know in terms of um uh, one of the things we know about memory is that repetition is really important um that you have to have usually more than one exposure to something before um, you're going to remember it long-term. And this is one of the reasons we want to sort of move away from just event-based learning. I send you to class once and I expect everything to stick. That's not a realistic thing with what we know about how the mind and brain works and, you know, how you forget things. And so even a day later, bringing something back into memory, um, uh, will make that a much stronger memory. And it goes down to like brain physiology, basically. So um, what happens is you're developing a neuronal connection around, you know, something that you've learned. And if that connection gets reinforced, it becomes basically stronger. It's sort of like if you're walking on a path in the woods, if one person walks on it, the, the greenery is going to come back together pretty quickly and that path will be gone. But if, you know, 200 people walk on that path in the woods, um, then that path becomes much more pronounced and it's much more likely to stay. It's similar with memory where if we, you know, kind of trod that path multiple times, we're much more likely to remember it. Um, so, you know, there's different methods at looking at boosters. So if you learn something on Monday, you know, we might want to boost it on Wednesday and then we might want to boost it the following Monday and then we might want to boost it two weeks later. Um, and there's some there's some nice data behind that kind of gradually spacing it out. So going a little bit of a longer interval over time. Um, but a lot of it comes down to emotional connection. There's some really interesting research from a um, researcher, uh, um, Antonio Damasio, who talks about uh, decision-making and emotionality. And the idea that we have that people are quote-unquote rational decision-makers is almost certainly wrong because he studied a lot of people who've had damage to brain regions, either a stroke or an accident, where that govern emotion. And so these are people who don't, they don't get very upset. They don't get very, you know, sad. They don't get really happy. They have a very flat, flat emotional affect. And so theoretically, if there were, that may, would make them more rational decision makers. And in actuality, it makes them kind of terrible decision makers because there's no emotional tug to help pull you in one direction or the other. And so one of the biggest things that we tend to do 
um, with a lot of learning is we kind of depersonalize it. We kind of strip it down to its bare facts. But what happens is we lose all of the emotional context over something. And when you lose all of the emotional context, the message that's going to your brain is this isn't very important because how strongly you feel about something tells you how important it is. And if there's no feelings around something, the, the message you may intellectually know that this is an important fact, but um, but emotionally it doesn't feel important. And therefore, it's just a harder thing for your brain to hang on to. And so that's where strategies like putting things into scenarios or um, storytelling become really powerful tools for memory because it 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 puts that emotional context back and it helps you understand not only what the fact is, but why the fact's important or meaningful or why it's going to matter, um, you know, when you go back to your job or things like that. One of the other things that I liked about this book, and I, I always put myself into the situation I kind of selfishly when I do these interviews, I'm like, well, I really want to know about that. But you talk about ways to get their attention. And I always think about whenever I look at the sessions we do at Blanchard, what about those guys that are on the fringes? Because I was on the fringes of the room, you know, in elementary school and high school. And my, you know, my attention had to be pulled in from time to time. How are you finding with adult learning? What are some effective ways to make sure that everybody in that classroom, including that guy on the, the, the edge of the room is, is all engaged. How do you, how do you keep them in that spot? Yeah, no, the getting attention is super important right now because we live in an attention kind of flooded world, right? There's so many things competing for our attention right now. And we all have, you know, we all have devices that are all trying to demand our attention all the time. And so um, finding ways to actually help learners pay attention is really important because even when their intentions are good about it, um, they may get distracted by other things, you know, in the environment, especially now we're doing so much online learning, you know, we're not taking taking people out of their environments, which kind of gave them a little bit of an attention buffer. Um, they're still in the same environment where emails are coming in or where their phone's beeping or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, there's, that becomes really important is trying to figure out how do you help people pay attention better. And there's all these myths about attention right now. There's a, there's a myth that's particularly prevalent that our attention span is now shorter than a goldfish which is completely nonsensical. And I'd be happy to explain the origins of where that particular myth came from. Although my question is always, how do you operationally define goldfish attention? Like, how are we measuring goldfish attention in order to establish that idea? Um, but it turns out it's pure myth came from um, a convoluted set of sources, but it's, it's not a true thing at all. And, you know, the truth is we've all, you know, binged a Netflix show, which means you can pay attention for, you know, six hours at a time if you really want to pay attention. Um, the limitations to our attention span are probably more about where we're forcing ourselves to pay attention to something that we're fundamentally not interested in. So when you start to think about somebody in a classroom or somebody in a, um, uh, a you know, somebody in a Zoom webinar or something, one of the big issues is, are you interacting with your learners? Um, because if the learner feels like they have no responsibilities in this space other than to sit there and listen, that's a tough ask for people's brains, quite frankly. Um, if they're really interested in the topic, great. But if they're not so interested in the topic and they still need to be there, that's where that attention is going to start to wander like crazy. But if they have a responsibility, if they're going to have to answer questions or they're going to have to participate in discussions or they're going to have to contribute to certain, you know, certain topics throughout, then that's a cue, again, that they 
that, you know, they can't just sort of check out and click over to their email or whatever it is because, hey, I have responsibilities here. I need to be paying attention in case one of these questions gets directed towards me. And that doesn't have to be a combative thing. It can be really much more of a participatory collegial thing where they're, you know, they're contributing to the conversation and things like that. So, you know, one of the the pieces of advice I always give new teachers is, is there any way that the learners can tell you the answer rather than you telling them the answer? And if they can tell you the answer, if you can put it out to the room and draw the answer out of them, that's a much more active process than you just telling them the answer because then it's a very passive process for them. In your research, how have you seen learning change? How have you seen that adjust in, in, in the last few years? Obviously, the the shift, the dramatic and abrupt shift to, to virtual learning is, has uh, really affected things. But, but are, you, are, you, are we getting better at, uh, at learning? Are we getting better at adult learning? Um, you know, brain physiology does not change that much. You know, evolutionarily speaking, we kind of have the, the hardware that we've had for quite a long time. And so, you know, the modern world doesn't adjust that. Now, now that said, brains are very, you know, um, plastic, uh, flexible organisms. And so they do adapt to their environments. And we are uh, existing in an environment where we've gotten used to really rapid pace of data and information coming at us and things like that. And so, um, so you know, they talk about people's brains being wired really differently. And I, I kind of resist that slightly because I think that, I think that actually, you know, people are Um, physiologically still pretty similar to the way that they've been for decades, but at the same time, their habits and their expectations are different. So their habits around how long they'll look at something before they switch their attention off to somebody else is absolutely changed. Or their um, expectations about what the learning experience is going to be like. But I think there's also this idea that learning somehow needs to be entertaining. And I I resist that a little bit because um, the example I always give of this is if I asked you on a scale of one zero to 10, how interested would you be in a five-minute video on printer repair right now? What would you tell me? Zero to 10. On printer repair, uh, I would yeah. not have, I'd have I'd little to no interest in that. Yeah, yeah, possibly zero, right? But if your printer's broken, what's your level of interest in that video now? It's, it's a video for your that, actual That's printer. why YouTube exists. Yeah, absolutely. I'd right. find that right away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, you know, you're, you go from zero to 10. And so people think that because learning needs to be entertaining, um, that they somehow need to add, I don't know, unicorns and rainbows to it or something like that. Um, but that's the same video on printer repair in both those scenarios. The video didn't change. What's different is you had an active need and your interest was very different at that point. And so that's one of the things that I think we are getting a bit better at, but need to still get better at, which is presenting the right information at the right time. You know, so I'm not going to make you learn something you can't use for six months. I'm going to wait until you actually have a need for it and then provide the information on it. Because then it's much easier for you to pay attention to something if you have a need or a purpose for it. They say that what gets gets measured gets done. So I want to, as we start to kind of wrap up our conversation today, um, I want to talk about measurement. Like, what have you found to be the most effective way to evaluate um, how effective your your learning is? What are some tips and tricks that people can can take away as, as it applies to to evaluating the effectiveness? 
Yeah. And and finding feedback on your learning efforts is really one of the most important things you can do because the answer is learning is a complicated activity for people. And so you want to have some measure coming back in about what works or what doesn't work. And unfortunately, that can be a little bit hard to to kind of pin down. Um, One of the things that I do talk about frequently, though, is the over-reliance on multiple choice tests. Um, I think everybody thinks that's how you evaluate learning because we all had to do so many of them, you know, when we were growing up and and afterwards and things like that. And multiple choice tests are great for evaluating something that's purely knowledge-based. So if it's just a piece of information you need to remember, multiple choice test is a perfectly good way to do that. But what I really want to do at that point is watch you coach an employee and give you feedback on it. Um, so not expecting um, like traditional testing methods to kind of cover every kind of behavior is I think a really important piece of evaluation and have figure out how do I, um, it might be through coaching mechanisms, it might be through on the job stuff, you know, it might be through um, uh, some kind of self-evaluation with rubrics or checklists or things like that, but actually get people to perform the thing that you're wanting them to do and then give them feedback on that. And that's kind of the fundamental, you know, piece of learning is you try to do something and you find out whether it works or not and you adjust. Um, and that should be at the core of a learning experience. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the learning technology tells us that the the core of the learning experience is a piece of information. And I really think that the core of the learning experience should be a learner action that they get feedback on. We're talking with Julie Dirksen, author of Design for How People Learn. And, and Julie, as we start to wrap up our time here today, what's the one thing that you want our listeners, everybody that's tuned in, um, to take away from our conversation today and your research. Yeah, and I usually say the importance of getting feedback, but since we already talked about this, I'll give you my favorite learning tip. It's just a really simple thing that you can implement. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're putting together a slide deck or anything like that, on every point that you have, ask yourself, can I say, so, for example and add in more real-world examples or more stories of how to use it. Because I think that's the biggest um, opportunity that I see in a lot of stuff that people are doing. They, you know, they present the information, and because they're an expert, they've got this really rich story of how, why that information is important. And so getting a few more of those stories out into, um, into the world for the learners to hear, I think, is one of the, the easiest and best things that you can do to improve learning experiences for people. Great tips, and there's so many more. We just we just barely scratched the surface of all the great tips in design for how people learn. Julie, if people want to connect more with you or learn more about you, where would you send them? Um, yeah, my website is usablelearning.com, um, and I do a lot of workshops and do consulting work, and I'm always happy to help people. Um, and I also have a Facebook group that's named after the book, so it's Design for How People Learn on Facebook. I'm always happy to have people there. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. So appreciate your expertise. And and thanks again for joining us here on, on the Leader Chat. Yeah, happy to be here. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. 
And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. Chad, I really enjoyed your interview with Julie Dirksen on her book, Design for How People Learn. You've heard me say many times that if you stop learning, lie down and let them throw the dirt on you because you're really already dead. I, I heard that first from Norman Vincent Peale when we were working on a book, The Power of Ethical Management. But I, I think learning is an ongoing process. And having just recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of my 21st birthday, people say, when are you going to retire? I said, I'm not retiring. I'm refiring, which what is refiring all about? It's continuing to learn and all. And what's interesting about what Julie says is, is it's important for you to know how you learn as well as if you're trying to teach somebody else, how do they learn? So if somebody's going to try to teach me something, they got to know I'm auditory. I, you know, I don't like to read. I like to hear. Let me hear it or see it. Okay. And so uh, I think this is a fascinating area. And I think all of us ought to be uh, involved in listening because we all should be learners and we all have opportunities to teach others to learn. So thanks, Chad. Thanks, Julie. Very, very important stuff. 